Hello, and welcome to another episode of Agora Radio by Agora, the think tank that aims to bring questions of international relations closer to the people. I'm Dylan Rogers of Agora's Democracy and Governance Programme. I'm here with Saxony Anders, co-head of the Democracy and Governance Programme, to talk climate policy, COP26 and UK soft power. On the 13th of November 2021, COP26 ended and the Glasgow Climate Pact was signed. Celebrations were muted. Though the aim of limiting global warming to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels remains endangered, the fact that COP26 ended in agreement at all was welcomed given ongoing geopolitical tensions among the world's top emitters and the chaos of the COVID-19 pandemic. Indeed, many anticipated failure in Glasgow. China and Russia's announcements that their leaders would not attend set the tone, while India's announcement that it would only reach net zero emissions in 2070 was met with disappointment. India and China's ultimately successful efforts to change the language around coal from phase out to phase down was another setback, and one that appeared to bring COP President Alok Sharma to the brink of tears. But now the dust has settled, should the UK be celebrating success at COP26? Did the conference do anything to enhance UK soft power post-Brexit or change perceptions of UK leadership on climate change? To answer these and other questions, we're joined by two experts on UK climate policy. Caroline Kazemko is an Associate Professor of International Political Economy at the University of Warwick and Deputy Director of the UK Energy Research Centre's UK Energy in a Global Context programme. She's worked with Ofgem, MPs and local authorities to shape ideas for sustainable energy transitions and was part of an academic delegation to COP26. Tom Evans is a researcher at climate think tank E3G, where he works on climate diplomacy and COP26. Before joining E3G, he advised the Labour Party on climate change policy and coordinated the all-party parliamentary group on climate change. Caroline, Tom, thank you very much for joining us. So I wanted to start with an article that struck me soon after COP26 concluded in Glasgow. After the event, former Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change and former Home Secretary, Amber Rudd argued rather against the prevailing tide of opinion that COP26 had been a, quote, British success. So what did COP26 achieve and have its achievements proved durable to date? Caroline, I, I wonder if we could start with you on that. Yeah, sure, Dylan. Thanks for that question. And of course, thank you very much. Hello to Agora Radio listeners. It's a real pleasure to be here with you um, and discussing this incredibly interesting and pertinent issue, which will not be going away for a very long time to come. So no doubt there might be further conversations <laughs> for your listeners on this. Um, but the question of success um, I guess will only be judged uh, sometime in the future uh, when we look back. Um, certainly one could argue that it is an achievement that the aim of 1.5 degrees, so obviously we all understand that in the Paris Agreement there was a firm target of a two degree limit, but then there was an additional aim to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. 
Um, and that aim now seems to be more of the firm target around which these uh, COP debates and discussions are orienting themselves. So that's actually uh, a not very much talked about, but quite interesting aspect of what's going on. And of course, and all of the coverage about it was, is 1.5 degrees still alive or is it not? And 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 who knows <laughs> is the answer to that question. There's some pretty sort of wildly different estimates uh, uh, of that. And again, I don't think we'll know until sometime in the, into the future. But if I'm thinking of the, so that's one achievement. A second achievement is around fossil fuel phase down being in the language of the agreement. So one of the clearest obstacles to climate change mitigation is phasing out fossil fuels. And that is because the world's economy more or less relies on fossil fuels. Most uh, developed and developing countries have dependent, depended on and still depend on fossil fuels to grow their economies. So that is absolutely core to what's going on here now. So to have placed language, even if it is watered down language, directly related to getting rid of fossil fuels over time within the agreement, I think is key. And hopefully is something that we will then be able to build on over time to make it more robust and speed it up a bit. And then um, lastly, uh, having been there, the two other sort of smaller aspects of, of what was achieved. Um, for me personally, because I think this is very important to keeping the political agenda of climate change mitigation alive, I noted far more talk of just transitions going on in meetings that I hadn't really expected to be picking up on just transitions. And so it was talked about mainly in relation to just transitions between different parts of the world, between different countries and different actor groups within the world, but also really importantly, just transitions in relation to domestic economies. So there are clearly people who stand to lose more and who stand to gain more within domestic economies from transitioning away from fossil fuels, obviously in relation to jobs, etc. So I thought it was useful that there's far more attempt to start to figure out how transitions um, from fossil fuels might be more just. And then lastly, the side deals. I mean, there were a lot of side deals. And so COP was maybe more about the side deals than it was about anything else this time around. But I thought the finance side deals, I mean, I don't imagine for a second that the amounts of money that Mark Carney was talking about that are being piled up to invest in clean tech and other new forms of clean growth are, are necessarily quite as large as, as, as he uh, suggested. But still, this movement of finance, because it's realising actually also that there are returns to be made in clean tech. I think this movement of finance towards clean alternatives is quite interesting, as is the increased um, commitment to divestment schedules away from fossil fuels. So I thought some of those side deals were, were quite interesting. Oh, thank you very much, Karina. So you, you've wonderfully introduced some of the things that we may not have picked up on in terms of what COP26 did achieve, as well as some of the more banner side agreements, as well as the Glasgow Climate Pact, which obviously has that language around phase down from fossil fuels. 
Tom, I, I wonder if I could come to you to talk a little bit about have any of those things that Caroline has talked about, have those achievements proved durable or are there any other achievements you'd like to flag that you think have or have not endured in the months since COP26? Sure. Thanks, Dylan. And yeah, thanks very much for having me on. It's really good to have this, this uh, conversation. It's nice kind of now that COP has settled, the dust around COP has settled a bit, you can have a bit of clarity about what we've actually achieved or not. And I think it's interesting when we were going into COP, we were really keen to make sure that we never viewed it as success versus failure. This was never going to solve all of the problems that climate change faces, but it could provide a step forward, hopefully a big step forward, one that lays the foundations for acceleration on action in the 2020s. And I think in that context, it did allow that, like as Caroline said, we are now kind of much more firmly focused on the 1.5 degree Celsius target than the two degree target in the Paris Agreement. We might not be there yet, but we're getting closer. And I think that's that's really, really important. And likewise, you know, there were, you know, um, seismic shifts on the inclusion of fossil fuels in, in the final COP outcome text. That's never been done before. And it does indicate how our approach to tackling climate change at the international level is now getting much more granular and really focusing in on the, the, the real challenges like fossil fuels that we need to be able to tackle um, this decade. I think there was probably a lot of expectation on this COP because it had to really deliver across all elements of the Paris Agreement. And a couple which probably um, it fell short on were the issues of solidarity and, uh, and delivering against climate impacts. So first of mind is the issue of loss and damage. This is something that really came to the fore at the end of the talks. It was a massive... A heated argument between, broadly speaking, the developing countries who wanted an outcome in the Glasgow Climate Pact, committing to the establishment of a facility or a fund on loss and damage to allow finance to address the impacts of climate change. So just to explain loss and damage, that's the unavoidable impacts of climate change above what can be adapted to. It's the irreversible economic and social impacts of climate change. So hurricanes destroying economies, destroying societies. Um, you know, that action on loss and damage wasn't as, as far as it could have been at COP. And it's certainly something that I think future COPs will pick up. Um, and the other one which comes to mind, of course, is this 100 billion, which is shorthand for the promise of 100 billion climate, 100 billion dollars in climate finance every year from developed to developing countries. That target was meant to have been met in 2020. It wasn't met. And really, this is about the, the, the solidarity, about the trust between all countries to to deliver on their promises and so that we all take action on climate change together. And that that trust uh, and that promise is, is really has been broken. It's running very low. And it, it, we just about got through Glasgow and COP26 with that intact. But it does really point towards huge challenges going forward, because if we're not able to actually address these climate impacts, which will only worsen, it's really unclear how we're actually going to be able to you know, have trust in the global climate regime in the UN system to be able to deliver on, on its agenda. Um, so it's very much a mixed, a mixed outcome. Some good things, some bad things, lots more work to do. And I finally say, I think one of the things that really showed up or rather what it, you know, one of the big gaps it now has to address is this credibility, which Caroline alluded to. So many commitments and so many questions about how they'll be implemented, whether they can be implemented with integrity, 
Um, you know, there's a stat going around that now 90% of the world's GDP is under a net zero target. On the one hand, that's great. It means we've now really mainstreamed the idea of net zero into economic planning, into the private sector. On the other hand, what does that actually mean? Do we have the plans and policies and pathways to get there that really would deliver on those targets? And there's many, many questions about that. So I think something else to keep an eye on. Okay, Stuart, President presidency of the G7 and COP26 was marketed here at home in Britain as the emergence of a new quote global Britain. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss described it as global Britain in action and said that at COP the aim was to build deeper economic, diplomatic and security partnerships. But did COP26 do much to enhance UK soft power post-Brexit or change perceptions of the UK's leadership on climate action? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one, right? Because COP26 was the big, the first major world leaders summit that UK that the UK hosted after Brexit. It could have been, and maybe it was, a, you know, a real example of global Britain in action because we had, you know, hundreds of world leaders here. It was a two week long summit, huge amounts of media attention and was certainly building on an area of UK leadership, which is climate diplomacy. The UK's for a long time been seen as a leader on climate because not just because of its domestic record, it has a really good domestic framework for tackling climate change in the Climate Change Act, which is seen as kind of a world leading framework. But also it's done a fair amount of progress on decarbonisation. It's not perfect by any means. It's very uneven progress to date. But compared to many other um, countries, it's rather seen as, as quite good. So it was building on, you know, solid kind of domestic foundations. And it's also had quite a large role in, in international climate diplomacy over the past 10, 15 or so years. It's one of the first countries to really um, build expertise in the foreign office on climate change, having climate diplomats around the world to enable in-country diplomacy. It had a, it's had for a long time a climate um, envoy, a special climate envoy, a position like John Kerry, but, you know, in the UK context. And, and so it's, it's, it was building naturally on its strengths. It wasn't a surprise that the UK would then want to use COP26 as this kind of global Britain in action moment. At the same time, I'd say, you know, the outcome of COP was just about good enough to say that it's, you know, to, to some people you could spin it as a success. And, and in, that's, in that regard, you know, the UK definitely saved a lot of face. It could have been way worse in terms of, uh, you know, before COP, we were very much looking at a potential outcome where nothing would be agreed because the task was simply too big. So in securing a positive outcome, it's to some extent a, uh, it's to some extent changed the perception on UK post-Brexit in that it has been um, a success of sorts. But there's still huge challenges to kind of the UK's reputation abroad, especially on climate diplomacy. And I'll come back, for instance, to its relationship with climate vulnerables. The 100 billion problem that I mentioned earlier hasn't been addressed. The, the issue of loss and damage hasn't been addressed. And you'll find, you know, at COP, many, many countries are really pointing the finger, not just at countries like the US or regions like the EU for failing, but specifically the UK COP presidency for taking a very Western, a very Northern, global North view on these issues and not pushing them enough and not challenging them enough. And, and really, if you, you know, if you look back at what was said in the final closing plenaries and what civil society was saying, they feel 
a different approach from the UK, much more focused on the issues of the global south, much more focused on the priorities of loss and damage, climate finance, adaptation, it could have led to a very different outcome. And, and a lot of these countries are, I'd say, quite frustrated and angry and disappointed in, in aspects of the UK presidency. And the other thing I'll finally add is that if this is an example of kind of global Britain in action, it's a very minimal vision of what that could be. It was very much led just by Alok Sharma and, and uh, the COP president, and very few of the wider cabinet played a, played a significant role. I'd say the foreign secretary um, was almost minimal in actually driving any of this diplomacy. We understand that the prime minister was quite influential, but really only towards the end. It was quite late on in the game, you know, really during the talks themselves and in the kind of final weeks in the run up that we saw the prime minister actually picking up the phone and speaking to counterparts in the G20, speaking to um, colleagues around the world to try and get final bits of action. If he'd played a bigger role a year, two years earlier, we could have got a much better outcome. And so it is disappointing to see that really it was only one minister leading this. It wasn't a whole of government approach to diplomacy. And that's what we're going to need to move to if we want to actually have effective climate diplomacy in the future. Great. Thanks, Tom. And Caroline, is there anything that you would like to add to that? Do you think that COP itself can market itself as a success or a success for UK soft power? Yeah, so on that, I think Tom's made some really great points, actually. So, um, but he's ended up with the sort of that minimal vision of, of, of the the extent to which uh, involvement and engagement went beyond um, you know, the, the more obvious candidates um, at COP. And I think that's a really interesting point as well, because one of the reasons if you look back at really successful um, leadership in um, COPs and you look back at, at um, COP in Paris and the Paris Agreement and the really explicit efforts that uh, France made to do a lot of the pre-negotiation and setting up the parameters in the year prior to COP, rather than having to focus so much of the effort in those like last ditch efforts sort of during that two week period where everyone's frankly exhausted <laughs> and uh, it's probably not um, as sort of positive or as lasting an approach really to, to getting agreement between countries around the world who have very different ideas about how to go about climate change mitigation and very different sets of interests in relation to it. So like, let's not underestimate the scale of the task in, involved here. And so if you want to really commit yourself to an agreement, I think it takes more than some tears and some great efforts sort of during the, the, that two week period to, to really achieve that. And I suppose in terms of soft power, I mean, I know that the UK self professes quite strongly to leadership here. And I know that we can probably relate that to, again, rather a narrow vision of what leadership is. So the UK self professes because it has always encouraged ambitious targets in relation to emissions reduction. Now it's kind of convenient for the UK to do that because the UK, uh, partly through having fabulous new North Sea gas assets <laughs> through that time period, managed to transition away from coal to gas for electricity production and obviously also for heating. And that was a huge boost for their ability 
to reduce emissions, but not necessarily a planned and target environmental policy. It was a policy that related to all sorts of other political aims and targets through the late 80s and 1990s. So it's easy to say we're a leader and to encourage others to follow your lead in that way. But I would say that the UK is now in a really tricky position because I think a lot of the easy work is done. And the Cl Committee on Climate Change is very clear that the UK is not on target. It does not have the policies in place to meet either their next uh, Climate Change Act budget or net zero in 2050. So if leadership and credibility around leadership begins at home, I think the UK is in a really difficult position now. And I mean, I suppose, particularly there's two weaknesses in policy at the moment. One is grasping the nettle of phasing out fossil fuels. So sure, success in coal, but not necessarily climate associated success or intentionally, but now it's gas. Gas interests are deeply embedded in the UK economy and there seems to be no real plan as to how you we are going to phase that out in a just manner because clearly the phase out from coal was not achieved in a just manner so there was plenty of kickback against that and the other area where it seems like a little bit odd that the UK policy can be so off track is in the area of energy efficiency so one of the clearest ways to phase out fossil fuels and clean up our energy is by making our demand more efficient. And that involves insulating homes so that you're not whacking up your gas demand while it all just seeps out your walls and windows and roofs, et cetera, et cetera. And that is such a well-known aspect of how to deliver on emissions reductions targets, whilst also saving your consumers from having to pay too much for their heating, et cetera. And the fact that we just don't really currently have much of an energy efficiency policy, I think, is a really key failing that reflects badly, actually, on the UK's soft power in this area. Now, I, I guess to return to something you said, Caroline, about kind of extensive negotiations leading to sometimes unclear outcomes, the UK's decision to leave the European Union has profound implications for its efforts to reach net zero by 2050. So how has Brexit actually influenced policymaking on this issue? And did COP26 provide any further clarity? about how Britain now intends to reach what remains a, a legally binding target. I mean, Caroline, I know you've done some uh, some work on this recently, so I wonder if I could start with you. Yeah, sure. So in terms of um, Brexit, I suppose if you want to spin this positively, and I know how our current administration like to spin things positively, <laughs> you could argue that the amount of extra attention on the UK and its climate mitigation plans that resulted from them being um, hosts to COP26 maybe contributed to their adopting a rather ambitious um, NDC, uh, new ambitious targets in, in the run-up to COP. But I mean, I suppose the sort of counter-argument to that spin is that, well, you still have the core argument, which is that 
you're still off track to meet <laughs> many of your existing uh, ambitious targets. So that probably doesn't really help things very much. Um, and uh, the other way of looking at it at Brexit, though, is the degree to which it complicates UK's uh, uh, policy ambitions and policy making, actually, in this area. So um, as a result of Brexit, the UK obviously left the EU emissions trading scheme. Um, it then uh, had to, uh, because of its uh, the deal that was signed, it had to commit to, and it would have wanted to anyway, have its own method of putting a price on carbon and so the UK has set up its own UK ETS, but for various reasons to do with um, uh, uh, liquidity and volatility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, although the UK uh, price on carbon has remained pretty much in line with that of the EU's, um, there has been some volatility there, which has been um, difficult at times. And there are plans to improve that emissions trading system, the UK emissions trading system, but that involves more negotiating with the EU. And most commentators are asking government and parts of government are asking government to link the UK ETS back to the EU ETS to give it that greater liquidity. Um, but unfortunately, the broader relationship at the moment between the UK and the EU is not good. And, and the policymakers that I speak to who are trying to negotiate aspects of that relationship are saying that uh, fishing and Northern Ireland and other areas of disagreement are standing in the way of being able to agree things that might have been a little bit more straightforward because the EU and the UK both want to put a price on, on carbon in this sort of market-oriented kind of way. So, you know, otherwise it might have been more straightforward. So the fact that the UK ETS is, is not as good as it was when it was part of the EU ETS, well, it's like a slight demotion, isn't it, versus the previous posi position. And there are other things that are sort of slightly suboptimal now. So I don't know if your listeners are aware, but there are huge uh, planned projects for offshore wind in the North Sea, and they're projects that sit between the EU and the UK. And as part of the EU's um, internal energy market, how those um, projects would interconnect between the UK and the EU and how it would be traded, et cetera, was straightforward because all those rules were covered uh, within that agreement. But now the UK is no longer in the internal energy market, which severely complicates how the UK and the EU are going to coordinate over those vast new offshore resources, which are really important to meeting the UK's targets as they are important to meeting the EU's targets. So that's sort of another sort of slight downside as a result of Brexit. And the other one that I've written quite a lot about is this question of, of sort of bandwidth and, and policy capacity. And it's a little bit harder to understand. But if we take as an original argument, the fact that designing sustainable and just energy policy to meet these frankly new policy goals of climate change mitigation, which are historically incredibly new, takes an enormous amount of knowledge, personnel, research, data, information. It just takes a lot of policy capacity. 
And when you've got your civil service, who, by the way, before Brexit, Brexit were running at le- lowest numbers in a very, very long time. And obviously Brexit did increase their numbers a bit, but, but still not up to what they had been prior to the financial crash. So if you've got sort of medium limited numbers of civil servants who were asked to do this incredibly difficult task of redesigning your entire energy system and market so that it becomes low carbon. But then you say to them, oh, hold off a sec. (laughs) We're missing our targets. You've got to do this incredibly difficult job. Oh, no, but now you have to do Brexit too. (laughs) Uh, It has had a big impact on policymakers and the time that they have to concentrate on the real task at hand, which is mitigating for climate change. So that's my take on, on how Brexit relates to all of this. That, that is that's really interesting. I mean, so, so Caroline there's outlined this, the idea of a civil service with limited bandwidth moving to what she refers to as suboptimal, very diplomatically um, arrangements going forward. Tom, is there anything else you'd like to add in terms of where Brexit leaves the UK's ambitions for net zero by 2050? Yeah, I mean, I think perhaps reflecting less on its kind of domestic implications, but more on just its international implications, I think Caroline also touched on in terms of thinking through UK-EU coordination. I mean, really, we saw it last year in the run-up to COP26, the fact that the UK wasn't in the same meeting rooms as the EU, able to really influence and structure and push other member states and the Commission around a shared, coherent vision for COP26. It meant that we had very uncoordinated diplomacy on, on a number of topics in the run-up to it. We saw kind of competing initiatives. We still see this problem now, for instance. We, you know, one of the big priorities next year will be about unlocking um, a new order of magnitude in finance to accelerate sustainable development and clean energy transition in developing countries. And throughout last year, we had a number of rival initiatives pop up. We've got the American uh, Build Back Better World Initiative. We've got the EU Global Gateway Initiative. And in the UK, we have the Clean and green initiative and i mean admittedly the us scheme would, would always probably be separate but you do wonder whether there could have been much better coordination on what this global gateway and clean green initiative look like and how they work and who they're reaching out to to set up these these financial offers for clean energy all of that could be much better coordinated when the uk is in the same room and now we have them out of the room and and there are obviously the, the, those kind of just simple challenges of coordinating but diplomacy is so much just about coordinating who does what, when, to land at a certain time. And um, it sounds like a simple problem, but it just it just means that things get duplicated and lost in translation, and it will be an ongoing challenge. And I think, you know, we'll probably see it most of all um, as we approach, well, you know, the UK has the COP presidency for the rest of 2022. Afterwards, it will just become a normal party to the Paris Agreement. It won't have a presidency hat. And traditionally, the UK negotiated with the EU at the UN on climate. It was actually often, you know, a really leading role in the EU EU bloc. Now, we're not so sure where the UK will negotiate. It might sit with another group of countries known as the Umbrella Group, features countries like Australia, which is a very different way of approaching climate negotiations. It's definitely much more um, looking to block progress and looking to, um, and looking to kind of hold stronger positions on on issues like fossil fuels and, and finance. So, There's a lot of uncertainty there, but all it points to is the fact that the coordination between the UK and EU will be more challenging, and it just makes things that much harder when we're trying to move quickly, move fast, and move in the same direction together on climate. 
That's great. Thank you both. Now, just before we close off this episode of Agora Radio, I'd like to ask you both, what it, the UK will remain COP26 president until November. So what do you think its top priority should be before then, in a few words? Uh, Tom, if you would like to start. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's so many things on the to-do list for the year. So it's hard to kind of identify just a handful of priorities. But I think probably three come to mind. I mean, the first is that in the Glasgow Climate Pact, um, agreed at COP26, all countries agreed that they would come back this year by the end of the year with new 2030 climate targets, these things called NDCs, nationally determined contributions. Um, the UK really needs to play a strong role in driving the diplomacy to push countries to do that. There's so many countries that haven't even done that last year and many more countries, especially some of the G20 major emitters, who just simply didn't put forward a target that's ambitious enough I'm thinking of the likes of Australia, um, Indonesia, Mexico, Turkey, Russia, China didn't put forward a target, Brazil put forward a target which was less ambitious than before, as did Russia. So there's you know, scores of these major emitters who really haven't done enough, and the UK is really going to have to set high expectations on those countries and work with, you know, work with allies to make that happen. The second is loss and damage, which we talked about earlier. There's huge expectations this year of um, at COP27, another breakthrough, another kind of uh, another chance for developing countries to get their ask on a facility, a fund for loss and damage. Who knows whether it will happen? But what we do know is that the UK can play a really key role in building that dialogue together, getting countries around the table and talking about this more. Last time at COP26, it basically came up out of nowhere and took people off guard. It shouldn't have. It should have been talked about more in advance, and the UK can do that this year. And then finally, on the finance for unlocking ambition this year and moving just you know beyond the 100 billion but really talking about the trillions of, of dollars that are needed in climate transition finance and again as i mentioned you know there's all these initiatives trying to unlock infrastructure investment the uk could play a really important role in bringing people around the table getting target countries donor countries and recipient countries together and, and planning this in a coordinated way so that by the end of the year we actually have pilot projects up and running like last year, the South Africa deal, an $8.5 billion deal coordinated between the UK, the US, Germany and the EU for the just transition of South Africa's coal sector. Replicating that in other countries is going to take coordination. And that's exactly something that the UK COP presidency could do. Thanks. Great. Thank you. And Caroline, what do you think the UK's top priority or priority should be for the next year? Um, well, if I was running the country, <laughs> so this may be a little bit different from what will actually happen, but I do think that this is this is not just sort of a this coming next COP thing. It's a sort of a it's a on out into the future, and I guess it's picking up a bit on some of the things that Tom's been talking about um, in terms of this question of trust. So I think that trust or at the very least um, showing a little bit less hypocrisy in relation to fossil fuels would be a sort of more genuine leadership take on how we can get some of these uh, key emitters back on side. Um, and so I think there's some problematics here really aren't there. So when the language in the last COP agreement was, was um, watered down to be a phase down of fossil fuels rather than a phase out of fossil fuels, 
the UK seemed to spend a lot of time pointing the finger at India, whereas one of its sort of key allies, Australia, was just as involved in that watering down of the language uh, as, as India. So, I mean, India is more important in terms of bringing down global emissions than Australia is, quite frankly. So, you know, let's try and move back towards more of a a position of trust with with India as the UK. And in terms of um, showing sort of a slightly more honest form of leadership to other fossil fuel producers in the world, because the UK is still a fossil fuel producer, if you're thinking about key emitters like Russia, um, it's very hard to bang on their door saying you must reduce output of oil and you must reduce output of gas. I mean, there's all sorts of things, obviously, that Russia can do in that area. But if you as a fossil fuel producer, i.e. the UK, are allowing for new drilling to go ahead in the North Sea, and if you don't have really concrete plans for how you're going to phase out your deeply embedded coal industry and other coal infrastructures and sorry gas infrastructures and assets in the UK then it's really hard to have that kind of open conversation where you're suggesting and it's not just Russia it's Saudi Arabia it's also other countries if you really want to show leadership I think that's the way to do it and as a country and again this is another trust thing as a country that's right up there in top historical emitters (laughs) through its industrial revolution development of coal and all the riches that it gained through those processes if the UK can't stand up and be the one that really leads in this area then I think it's quite hard to have those difficult conversations I'll leave it there great thank you and that brings us to the end of this Agora Radio episode Thank you to our guests, Caroline and Tom, for your insight into UK soft power post-COP26. We've heard that the UK can use its position to encourage the dialogue and build trust with other countries by upholding its own emission targets and contributing to the loss and damage fund. Follow Agora on social media at Agora Think Tank and subscribe to our newsletter via agorathinktank.org. Thank you.